Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes that they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Stephen Boris is one of the leading and most educated voices in art and art history in the country. He holds a PhD in art and architectural history from McGill and a master's in art history from the University of Toronto, on top of being the curator or curatorial assistant at many acclaimed museums and galleries across North America. In his current role as the director and CEO of the Winnipeg Art Gallery, Stephen's been tasked with building Canada's first Inuit art centre, slated to open in 2020. When we are responding to the specific calls to action for museums from the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, in terms of what museums are supposed to do, one of the biggest calls is for rethinking the narrative and what we have presented and who is behind that narrative. I sat down with Stephen to talk about storytelling through art, educating our youth in the language of artistry, and the importance of giving a platform to Indigenous artists to showcase their beautiful works. Because art is a voice, a way to speak, and a dialogue. We have to amplify the voices that have yet to be heard. Stephen Boris, thank you for joining us in the Because and Effect podcast. Happy to have you here and talk about some art. It's fabulous to be here. Thank you. So the director and CEO of the Winnipeg Art Gallery, how long have you been in that role, first of all? Just over 10 years. And, well, congratulations on the the 10, the... Do they call it? Is there no, a special word for no, that? No, actually 11 years. 11 now. Let me yeah, correct you. Huge. Well, congratulations. Um, what has the journey been like for you when you've stepped into this role? And, and what what did you think 11 years ago compared to what you feel like you've accomplished now? Let's, let's start off there. Oh, that's a great question because some of the things we discussed today, if you'd asked me the same ones 10 years ago, I probably would have very different answers. Some would be the same, but I would say... Um, it hasn't really been my journey. It's been the journey of the community. And they've taken me places I never thought I would go. They've taken the WAG to places it's never been. It's changed every year. But then I shouldn't be surprised because art has a way of doing that. It's alive. It's been produced. It's been received. And the community is part of that. So what has surprised you? Did you not expect such an outpouring of support in your stead? Or what, what, what was surprising? You know, I, I was surprised <clears throat> by how quickly people, and I, members, donors, visitors, stakeholders, began to understand and embrace what I thought was the vision for the WAG in terms of the power of art in our community and using art in an advocacy way. And what, uh, <clears throat> like, what are you most proud of as far as advocacy that the WAG has sort of spearheaded in the last few years? Or some examples, because there's obviously not just one. So I have the advantage of <clears throat> growing up in Winnipeg, but then leaving when I was 21, coming back years later to lead the WAG. But lead the WAG at a critical moment in, in its history. I came back as we were preparing for its centennial, and I was given the task of, can you build an Inuit art center, whatever that means. And I would say what has happened in those 10 years has... Um, made me rethink not just what is the profession of a museum director, what's the role of an art museum, but also rethinking what is the power of art in the community. And where have you landed when it comes to the power of art in the community? I'm amazed by how people see it for more than an object on a wall, something for pleasure and enjoyment. 
but as a tool, as a vehicle to communicate, to share. Um, you know, when we were preparing for the centennial, um, there was a big buzz, a big support for advocacy for art. Okay. And, you know, I, I got that. But I actually was more interested in looking at art in an advocacy role, using art to improve things in people's lives, in a community, to raise awareness, education, um, exposure, tolerance, understanding. So art being a tool as opposed to just art for itself, in itself. Right, art being a, a tool to connect us to, and that's what it's all about, is realizing we're all kind of in a community together, right? How, how has the community uh, response been to the, specifically to the Inuit Art Center, and then also just to the WAG as a whole, and passing the 100th anniversary, uh, the 100th cent or the centennial anniversary? You know, the, the um, response from the community to the Inuit Art Center project has been extraordinary. But it didn't unfold exactly the way some people thought it would. But it did unfold in a way that I hoped it would. Mm. And that's really through the eyes of a grade three student. And I tell you this, because in Manitoba, with the school curriculum, they study the North, they study indigenous culture, but they do it um, through textbooks, through videos and films and maps and some documents and some government documents. But my dream was with the Inuit Art Center that when the first class, and it usually is in grade three, when they really turn to the north and go deeper into Canadian history and geography and, and Canadian um, peoples today, is that through art, whether it's an Inuit carving, a print, a drawing, a textile, a painting, that that would be the launching point for them to understand another culture, another people, rather than through the textbook. Mm. And you know, it has worked that way up. Kids got it right away. And their parents, their guardians, their friends, their teachers, and then our greater donor base. So it actually started with the youth, the children of this, of this city. Speaks to the sort of the innocence that they have, right, a, and a willingness to learn about a new culture and, and realize that there's something greater than themselves, even at such a young age. How do we transfer that to people who are maybe stuck in their ways and, and unwilling to expand their horizons a little bit? It's, it's a very good question. It's a question that I think about a lot with the millennials, which is the mm -hmm. largest group of people today. Um, but I will say this. And I can give an example of a, a big exhibition we did just over a year ago, Insurgents Resurgence, which was the largest contemporary Indigenous show in the WAG's history. Dealing with contemporary issues, some very difficult, challenging themes and issues and thoughts. But what was amazing, it was a show with not a lot of didactics or what we call text on the walls. The art was there. There was some supporting material. But what happened is... It's sold out for all our school groups. So it tells me, wow, art is pretty powerful, even without some of the narratives. And the thing is, like you said about kids and, and maybe innocence, naivete, whatever, but they're coming in with fresh eyes, with an open mind, and a different way to grasp things than we as adults have, or at least even in my generation. We'll return back to... I'm, I'm curious if you think... Um additional narratives help or hurt the piece itself sometimes you know like if there's just a, a piece of art or you know there's 13,000 works of art that are going to be in this Inuit Art Center I'm assuming not everyone will have a paragraph or two or maybe they will do you think 
that is always a benefit to have that narrative connected to it? Or do you think that sometimes people should connect their own narratives to it? Okay, it's like you read my diary. <laughs> oh, really? Because I think about this all the time. Yeah. And this is, this is something that we're dealing with today. We have the largest collection of Inuit art in the world, largest contemporary collection. You know, 14,000 pieces, another 8,000 on loan. But the strongest and biggest narrative that has been produced and communicated to our audiences is a non-Indigenous narrative. Let's call it a white narrative. Um, right. Not to dismiss it or to dismantle it, but to put it in its place. And so I like to think that every object has a, has a thousand stories. Um, but the first story, the first narrative must be the indigenous narrative. And that voice has to be the strongest. There's no question. And so we're needing to, to step back a bit and let others lead. I don't want to discount what has been said from a museological point of view, from an art historical point of view. But we have to shuffle things and make sure that there's a hierarchy that that hasn't been in place before. It's an interesting time. I mean, the Winnipeg Foundation is going through this as well. We're coming up on our centennial in 2021. And you have to understand the historical context of when the foundation was founded and when and what our history is as a city, as a province, as an, as a country. So through the lens of art, how are you approaching um, the fact that you need to have these indigenous voices front and center, whereas it may not have been the case uh, up until now for the WAG? I see it really, and I'm going to see it, I'm speaking through the eyes of, uh, as an educational institution for, for starters, it's a win-win situation. Mm. For instance, um, art has been used for centuries, for millennia, for people to express themselves in secular societies, in religious societies, historical, contemporary, the whole bit. Art... Um, is often preceding a language, a vocabulary, um, in terms of an illustration, a way to document a thought, an idea, an emotion. And so when we are responding to the specific calls to action for museums from the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, in terms of what museums are supposed to do, one of the biggest calls is for rethinking the narrative mm -hmm. and what we have presented and who is behind that narrative. So with the opening of the Inuit Arts Center now, in 2020, it's a perfect time to be laying the groundwork for that. Yeah, it's a huge opportunity, right? Because there's an opportunity to educate and to inform, but also to showcase some of the talent that hasn't been showcased for years here. How are you approaching that um, responsibility, essentially, to, to, to showcase these voices who have been silenced, actively silenced for a long time? You know, we're doing it through a, a number of ways. So first of all, you have the objects themselves. And actually, if we're speaking about the Inuit collection, uh, the Inuit carvers will tell you um, the stories remain in the stone, and they're still alive, and they're coming out, they're coming out, which is, which is really hopeful for me as museum director. I will say we are engaging with the Inuit community in a new way. We're working with living artists, we're working with the descendants of artists that have passed on, and we're working with educational institutions, community institutions, to look at new training modules, methods to, to, to help support them understand art making, but also its role in the museum. We're not, we're not throwing out what's been done, but 
at times we're putting that aside mm -hmm. to al allow a, a greater, a more authentic, a more authentic voice to come out. We in the in the museum industry, this is this is interesting. We've trained our audiences to read a text before they look at the object. You may do it yourself. I've done it. I'll go to a museum, and before I'm looking at the painting, I'm reading what they say about it. Well, you know that's one voice, one perspective. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, it's the curatorial perspective. So it's, it's important for us to wean ourselves to let go of some of the control that we've had and say, you know what? Let the people decide how they want to access information. Right, an exercise in restraint for you know, knowing and believing that you, you're, you're an expert in certain things, but then realizing, okay, maybe this voice isn't super necessary at all times, right? It's, yeah. it's huge. It's, um, the other thing is, believe it or not, um, there have been studies done um, by the Association of American Museums, the Canadian Museum Association. When people listen to the 6 o'clock news, read the headline in the newspaper or online, the percentage of what they believe goes from about 55% to maybe 65%. Mm -hmm. um, when people go to a museum and they read a label on the wall, it's like 82% or something. In other words, the trust that we have with the public is huge. And if that is ever betrayed, it's a huge blow to the museum because people come in expecting what they're reading on the wall is right or true. And if it's not, we have a huge problem. There is an authority there. There's an authority and, and a responsibility. So how, like there's 13,000, or didn't you say 8,000 plus 14,000 yeah. lent out? How do you tell 22,000 different stories in a c compelling way? Obviously, that's the challenge. Right. There is, um, you, you know, you comment on, does every work get a label? Mm -hmm. it's, it's unlikely. However, right. Every object does have a file. So there is a document for you. However, that might be an audio file. It might be a pictorial file. It might be a text file. Um, I would say every time a work is brought out of the vault on display, there's a new narrative displayed. Mm -hmm. And I would find even artists looking at their own work, other things come out to them about their object at different stages. So it's, in a way, a very living vehicle of communication. Well, even the act of being featured at a prestigious institution like the WAG is going to affect the story of the piece, right? So that's still a part of the story, just being displayed in such a prominent and impressive situation. Definitely. Yeah. So are you always going to be working with artists to kind of stay updated and, and, and be on top of things? Or like once it's done, it's done and okay, that's it? No, it's, it's not a static endeavor. Right. Um, and there'll be many different ways to exhibit our art, but we will find that as we are an institution collecting contemporary art, we are always moving forward to bring in new artists, new voices, which also allows us to look at historical and modern material. Mm. I, I find the carvings from 1950, 60, 70 are as relevant today, particularly when they're in the hands of other artists from that period. You can kind of recontextualize things and help people understand the history, but also maybe what was left out of that history and then a new context of what's current in a way. Exactly. Yeah. It's If you go back to this idea of art as a voice, mm. art as a tool to communicate, it's incredibly useful. Do you feel a, a responsibility since so many uh, Inuit and Indigenous voices have been silenced to give that platform now and and I mean I know you spent a lot of time up north and and working and and living with the indigenous and Inuit people tell me about that experience but also do you feel like this is something that you want to really um give a platform to now 
it's a huge responsibility. Um, it's a requirement. It's an expectation. But it's also a privilege and an honor to do it. So I can spend as much time as I want in the North, and I've had m amazing trips. It's interesting. Only one other WAG director ever ventured north of Churchill, and mm -hmm. that's in 107 years. That, in a way, is a little concerning to me when we have the largest collection of contemporary indigenous art. I will say this, that um, how do we do that? I'm simply a facilitator, but if you look at the way the WAG staff, its board, its, its volunteer corps have changed, half of our curatorial team is now indigenous. Um, we can organize as many shows as we want, but unless they're organized by Inuit curators, by First Nations Métis curators, that narrative is never going to change. And that's what's changing the WAG, literally person by person, coming on board, working with us, taking charge, and, and having responsibility. How has that changed your perspective, uh, having all these, these experience and, and partnering with all these artists and, and people and facilitating all these discussions? How has that sort of changed you over the past uh, few decades? It's changed me as a person. It's um, changed me as a museum director. It's changed me as a curator. I'm trained as a curator. It's made me rethink how we use art. From the WAG perspective, it's actually, it sounds strange, but it's shifted the moral compass. It has the way we look at things because the way non-Indigenous organizations hire um, document, and the way an indigenous organization would hire someone, for what role, how we look at a resume, a CV for a good curator, what we think is necessary for an education program is different. It's not that how we're doing it is, is wrong from the way we're trained, but it doesn't apply to an indigenous platform or methodology. And so it's easy to say, um, let's just stand back and, and insert something different. And it does shift how we look as an institution. For sure, it seems fundamental, right? Like how things are adjusting. Um, talk a little bit about the features about the Inuit Art Center. I know there's like an interactive theater that I thought was quite interesting. What is that? How, how can I go there? And what are, what are people gonna expect when they walk through the doors when it's fully open and ready to rock? Oh, this is a good question. That's what keeps me up at night, but it also keeps me completely engaged because my goal is, and sometimes, when well, my son is, he's now 15, but when, he, when we started this project, he was like eight. For me, it's in the eyes of the student. If they go to the new Inuit Art Center and they leave after their tour, and they say, so what? So, so what? We've lost out. So what does that mean? It means the experience of going to the Inuit Art Center will be different. It will be an experience that the museum has not trained you for or that the Winnipeg Art Gallery has not trained you for. It, that means rethinking what we put on the wall, what we put on the floor, how we light objects, what's accessible, what's behind a case, what about barricades, what about barriers. It also focuses on innovative interactivity, what you mentioned, and we can go on. The ways, the modes of learning have to change we have to be as much as we can in the avant-garde, and we have to be expecting kind of the unexpected. The museum experience cannot, and the gallery experience cannot be what it was 20 years ago. You know, after the internet changed things, everybody's got a phone in their pocket, everyone's, you know, there's VR things that I've heard discussed. How has technology um, 
inspired and or shifted your thinking as to how the WAG ought to operate? Well, technology for this project, um, it started with how do we connect the south to the north? And we thought of bridges. So, for instance, you have this collection of Inuit art when, in fact, of the, th- of three, of the three indigenous peoples in Canada, the Inuit are the, the smallest group in the south. Um, and even Winnipeg, Treaty 1, Métis Homeland, is a very small Inuit community. So the fact is they are spread out across the Canadian Arctic in communities far away geographically. How do we connect them to the works they produce? That's one thing. And then how do we connect those classrooms to our classrooms? That's big. I also have a mandate within Winnipeg and within Manitoba, but also Inuit art transcends Canadian borders. And there are Inuit or, or, or people of, the, of similar descent in Alaska, in Greenland, in Russia. And we, we have to be more than just Inuit to the Nunavut people, to the Nunavik people. So it's, technology is critical in connecting, but it's also critical in allowing people to access what we have. Um, remotely. Um, I, one of the best examples or templates that I've been thinking about is um, thinking of the museum as simply a place. And you may discover something, you may be inspired, you may be excited, you may be informed, but it's a place that you will come back and each experience is different. It may not always begin with art, but it's a safe, respectful, useful educational space. There's a lot of issues that Canada has had over the years and a lot of issues that I'm sure Indigenous artists uh, comment upon. Do you ever think that uh, those issues should be more front and center? Or like, are you encouraging? And do you ever encourage or try to shine a light on certain things? Or is it just kind of you say what your message is and we'll display it? Yeah, that's... Take a, take a long time to answer. I will say this. If we continue to respect, support, and accommodate artists with their artistic license, um, there's, a, there's a great possibility that we'll continue to keep art in a very front and center way. It's, um, it, it's tricky. People say, well, we don't want to mix art with politics. Art is political period, and it has been for centuries. Art is a tool to, to, before people could read, images were used for indoctrination and for exposure and for education. So we've been doing it. It's, it's politically sensitive at, at all fronts. That's not going to change. So how are you preparing to um, guide people through those experiences, knowing that there are some heavy themes and some divisive themes and some difficult topics, but you can't shy away from it. So what's the, what's the plan? That's, it's a good question. And what we do um, for starters, if we go back to the K to 12 school curriculum, um, when teachers are studying about murdered and missing women and children and girls, or when they're studying about <clears throat> the BNA act or the Indian act, or they're looking to, how do you, um, put life into the truth and reconciliation calls to schools. Well, if they know at every stage of the K-12 curriculum that there are objects, exhibitions, and programs at the WAG that they can use 
I feel we're making headway. Now, they, they know what they can and can't share or when it's appropriate. We had an exhibition of Off the Beaten Path, which was Women, Violence, and Art. And it was a show solely of women artists who have looked at violence against women. Now, of course, we worked with the school groups to understand when is it a grade eight class that we can look at that with them. We rely heavily on, on teachers to help us through that. And that makes us, I'd say, much more relevant. But you can never anticipate um, the response. And because people come into the museum with history, with experiences, or what we say, with their own baggage. They, they come mm-hmm. with preconceived notions, experiences. And so we can't change that. But I believe we can help situate themes and issues within a larger body. What are some of the... Um themes and you know ideas that you're excited to share with the average Winnipeg or average Manitoban average Canadian that some of these artists have been um, do have been performing and, and talking about their whole lives what are some themes and ideas that you think are really ready for the mainstream that haven't been yet well some of them may seem really basic but they're huge um, and one of them is place and I'll just maybe use the word geography and if you think of, um, we consider ourselves a northern city, but we're still very much in the south to our northern partners. And, and when you look just at latitudinal lines and where Winnipeg is and where Iqaluit is or where Baker Lake is, and then from geography scale, if you look at some of these communities are so small, and yet the production of their art per capita internationally is unprecedented that you can have 60, 70,000 Inuit in Canada, and yet you can find their artwork around the world. It tells you, I mean, it's an incredible um, potential there. So we're, I'm looking at place. I'm also looking at how we can deal with questions that even sometimes school teachers struggle with. How, how do you talk about sovereignty, sustainability, mm. um, climate change? How can you do it in a way that's, that's accessible, that's intelligent, and that's truthful? Well, you do it, by using artists who, in fact, come front and center with these issues in their communities. They're telling the story on relocation, residential schools. There's also a lot of hopeful stories in terms of um, how they live today that only they can tell. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What do you think it is about their communities that create such density of art creation? I, I would say it's because there is no word in Anuktitut for art or for artist. There, there isn't. Because I've never met an artist who is not also a teacher, a hunter, an elder. It's just intrinsic. In, it's yeah. part of them. Um, and not to, to generalize, but in a way there's a strong nomadic component to Inuit. And they move. They move with the hunt. They move with the seasons. And they oftentimes would carve before they were printmaking or creating textiles or drawings. So they're carving. They're carving objects that are portable. So they're small, and they carve when they can. But they carve not to create an art object, but to create an object. It might be a toy, a weapon, a tool, um, a religious object. It might be something to communicate. It might be for barter, for trade. But it's in their hand, something very useful and something that's always present. Not necessarily art for art's sake, but there's also function attached to it as well. Exactly. Yeah. And, and function, that's a big word in terms of what is functional to one community, one culture, and another. Right, absolutely. 
How um, how many s- or can you think of a couple moments or a couple artists or meeting or seeing a certain piece that really just moved you and you were like, I this has to be shared with the world. Oh, putting you on the spot. No, no, but there um, um, some objects, and in fact, there's some early drawings and prints. And what's interesting is um, of the 24 or 26 Inuit communities within Nunavut, all of them, with one exception, are on a body of water. Okay, Baker Lake is the only is the exception. And of course, it's on Baker Lake, but it's a small, but it's inland. So. When you fly into these communities today, you're seeing them very differently than how Inuit would see them. They would move by water, by land. And they would document a hunt. They would document a path um, that was used one year to the next year. They would mark these. I mean, even in Nookshooks, the way they're used. But they would actually be able to draw maps. They were early cartographers, but very different. So they're not looking at it like a bird's eye view, but they're documenting the land by the seasons, by the hunt, where the caribou are, where the whales are. And you, when you're up there, you begin to look at the land differently. And of course, our perspective in the South and the tools we've had to look are different. And it's helped me understand that, wow, those drawings were kind of mind-blowing. And I was looking at a map. It was a drawing of... um, it was Pangerton and the community right around there, which is right on the Arctic Circle. It looked very different than how I saw it on a map. But you realized it was, for them, their map. And still functions. And still functions. Right. And once you were there, you began to understand, of course, that's how it works. Those kind of images of the land by the people, not only are they fabulous artworks, but they're really powerful, useful documents. Are you hoping that um, attendees at the WAG and, and the Inuit Art Center eventually are, are transformed as well? Is that a, is that a intention? Transformed? Well, of course, transformation is very much part of Inuit art and, and transformation stories. They're as big as migration stories and creation stories. Transformed, I would like to think that people, whether it's on their first visit or their 10th visit, come away rethinking something. It may not be the art form. It may be their perspective on a people, mm-hmm. on a community, on an idea. I'd like to think that um, art is transformative, but it's really, that is in the eye of the beholder and someone, and for everyone it's different. Yeah. And I guess the, yeah, you've talked about it a lot, but just the role of the curator now is more of a guide and a, and a you know, almost like a tour guide through the history of things and just being able to add context when appropriate and explain things when not and, and, and kind of allow people to go on that journey on their own a little bit. It's, it's very true. And you mentioned um, what kind of tools, aids, um, technology. That will change. And, you know, the Inuit Art Center has been in the planning for years. I remember looking at the developments of technology with the Canadian Museum of Human Rights. Of course, you know, 12 years after, some of that technology has moved on so we really need to be, how do you keep up? You keep up by knowing what kids want today, what they want on their phone, their pad, at home. We have to be as resilient, as responsive as possible. Good luck. It's a never-ending battle in that, in that regard, for sure. Um, so at the end of our time together, we do a little segment called Just Because, where I'm going to ask you seven quick questions. Uh, Don't think about it too much, but uh, just off the top of your head, whatever you want to say. Sound good? 
Great. Question one, what is the very first cause that you actually remember caring about? Okay, you're going to have to believe me here. I do. I will. But it did have to do with art. My mom painted. She still paints. So I was exposed to art making from an, from an, an early age. But um, I remember wanting to create my own art and wanting to share it, to sell it, to exhibit it, really, as a really? kid. And um, why? Because I enjoyed it so much. Now, early on, I discovered I wasn't going to be a great artist, but I could use art. So I always enjoyed and I still enjoy walking through an exhibition, a show with someone, and learning about them through art. So for me, um, they, they talk about the first date or why museums are great to learn about people. I still learn about people through their experiences of art. That's so true. I've never really thought of it like that. But how someone reacts to something, you can tell quite a bit about them and how you react to something. I'm now realizing how I'm reacting to things is probably fairly telling No, no, as well. exactly. And, you know, people say, well, Stephen, can you share something about this object? Actually, I'm as interested in, in them sharing with me. And, you know, as a kid, when I was going home from school at night, you know when it gets dark in the wintertime and you can look, I grew up in Garden City, and you could look through picture windows to what people put over their sofa. The weird thing is, regardless of what people know about art, what they collected, we have the tendency to put objects on the wall. Why do we do that? We all have a gut feeling about something, and then it comes down to taste, art, production, creativity, but we've been doing it for, for centuries. It's very interesting to think about. Question two. If money, politics, logistics were no issue at all, what's the first thing you would do in support of the arts? Well, in Canada, I will say we're pretty fortunate with support for the arts. And I'll say the arts broadly. Um, but if I could raise the profile of the usefulness of culture and that it was understood in, in seats of power, government power, understood in schools... And that it's not seen simply as art for art's sake. If they truly understood that art is really a useful thing, if I could raise the profile of that, if I could help change school curriculums to really say, if you have to cancel your art class, that's okay, but you can still use art in your science class, in your math mm -hmm. class, in physics, in geography... For me, it's raising the profile of the usefulness of art. I feel like I've been having this conversation for 20 years about people not understanding the in inherent value. And, you know, arts is always the first thing cut. The music programs when I was in high school were non-existent. You know, the act, all, the, all the things that were considered extra are the first things on the chopping block. So do you think in your time since you've been in school and, and to now in your role that we've, we've moved the needle a little bit and people are starting to realize? Or is it still a battle that we have to fight explaining to people the value in art. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a battle, it's a challenge, it's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I will say this, I've learned a lot as a museum director, and you know, when it comes to art, we sometimes confuse art with taste. And then it adds an elitist mantle to it. Well, and so we put on an exhibition, so we, we feel we're the arbiters of taste. You put on a show, it doesn't matter how good it is, how good it looks on the wall, the catalog, the production, if people don't come in, we failed somehow, and, and I believe that is the, the greatest test, is if people connect with us, it means somehow we're relevant. Just evoking that emotional response is what you want, right? 
For sure. Uh, question three, what is the biggest misunderstanding? We kind of talked about this. What's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about the arts? Oh, this- that it's out of reach and that it's an extra and that it's a luxury because I do not believe it is. And I could give you so many examples. You know, I love Marshall McLuhan used to say art is an, uh, is a distant early warning system to tell one culture when the next culture has moved in. I, I will say this, that um, the one, call it a misunderstanding, people will say this, it's funny, I don't know much about art, but I know what I like, okay? So I, I, I respond by saying, that means the more you're exposed to, the more you can like or dislike. So before you discard that contemporary artist, look at them. Because then you can decide. And I feel it's simply let people letting down guards in terms of what they think art is. And perhaps, and even the art museum, letting control, letting go of control of, of what we think art is and let the people decide. I'm reminded of what you said a couple questions ago about how you realized at a very early age that you weren't an artist. And I'm constantly reminded, you know, I can't draw, I can't, I can play music. I can do certain things. But I wonder, I think, I hope, I'm optimistic in saying that everyone's an artist. It's just when you give up. And so when you're a kid, you're like, oh, I'm not an artist. But if you would have practiced for 10 more years, you know, maybe you would have been. And just because I happened to play guitar for the past 20 years, I'm okay at it now. But I stopped drawing w- once I gave up. So I'm wondering, like, is part of the stigma we're just telling our kids, oh, you're not good right away, so try something else. I would, you know, that, that is part of it. There's no question. And if you can look at, you know, since I've been at the WAG, I think we've tripled our school group attendance. So every, every day the school bucks pulling up. Um, and I see the kind of work that the kids are producing. And we've controlled so much of what we think is the way to draw, not just within the lines, but the colors we choose, the subjects we select. There's no question as the museum needs to let go, um, I believe schools need to let go in terms of understanding creativity. And it's not just in the studio. And it's not just one form of art, like painting or drawing. There's so many ways that we can be creative with, you know, with, in a cultural sense. Yeah, just encouraging that expression, regardless of what form or format it takes. Just encouraging someone to truly, authentically express themselves. That's art. Whatever they create is going to be art and continue to nurture that. Yes, and, yeah. and the goal may be simply an exercise. Mm-hmm. We do know art therapy is critical at every stage of people's lives. And if they can't express themselves um, verbally or by text, a lot of times... They can, they can show something, they can illustrate something that'll help them or help someone else understand. So fascinating. Absolutely. Question four, when's a time in your life where you had to pivot because a plan wasn't necessarily working out how you thought it would? I could, um, I could be precise in one way. I had just finished my, this is a few years ago, if that's okay. No, please. You know, I finished my PhD at McGill. My first job was as a curator of the National Gallery of Canada. I was a curator of the European collection. At that moment, I felt like I knew a lot. I thought I was an expert in my field. But going from the university to the public art museum, I realized, wow, the way I speak, the way I communicate is not necessarily the way people understand or read or access information. So it was a huge awakening that while my education was critical, 
I had to think of new ways to think, new ways, new vocabularies. And ultimately, I, for the first time as an academic, was working with the public. And so I wasn't writing to an academic community. And it made me realize, wow, there are people out there that access art differently than I do. Yeah, and how we've been, how we've been training ourselves in how to talk and how to interact with other like-minded artists or you know people who speak that language isn't necessarily how it's going to translate to Joe Schmo on the street. No, I mean, art speak is alive and well, and it's a vocabulary that's limited to a small percentage of the population. For sure. So is, has that been a conscious... Um, path to go down as, as making it as accessible as possible while still maintaining the um, struct like the integrity of, of the art maintaining integrity and being as exactly yeah. and um, it changes with every generation mm-hmm. just when we think we have it there'll be a new generation and that's what I love to think about Winnipeg and you can look at every 20 years there's a whole different group of people looking at the wag and just when you got it right you have to reconsider dismantle rethink but that's exciting, too. It's exciting. For sure. Uh, question five. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? You know, it, I guess two things. Um, back to from the art world, feeling that you, you are an authority in your field, that there are many perspectives on the same object. And um, clearly that at times was hard for me to understand or really accept when I spent years studying a particular field and I felt, wow, I have a lot to offer and I do know the material. But the fact is that perspective is as only good as the audience you're in front of. Hmm. Have you felt a disillusion or a dissolving of the ego in a sense when you think that you're sort of the authority and then realize, oh, there's different perspectives to... To handle, yeah, I, w- I would say that you know, and when I took this job at the Wag eleven years ago, I felt this seems naive today that I could, I could lead largely by the reputation I had built as a museum professional, and I realized quickly, um, leading by reputation will only get you so far. It might get you through one fiscal year, but understanding and 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 I don't mean this, I mean this seriously. Um, leading by values some of which I developed, that I embraced, but other values that I've understood from others that have made the WAG, I would say, a more useful institution in the community. Yeah, for sure. Question six, what advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you could talk to him right now? Well, it would be... (laughs) um, Sounds weird talking to a 10-year-old, but um, especially today... Um, to maybe to listen more to the way other people think. And I, I, I just say this um, because the way children learn access information today is different than the way I did. And there had to be more human interaction when I was getting information. Um, today, it's amazing how much you can acquire in front of your desktop or your laptop or your smartphone without having to have any interaction. And I would say um, knowledge, information is one thing, but the people that hold that knowledge, the arbiters, the producers, those are also the people you want to connect with. And I would say it's even people in my son's classroom and the way they access what they think. I I find um, 
interaction at any stage of life um, makes us um, better people. Just that connection. Rather than what you're getting, it's who you're getting it from is almost just as important than what, exactly. the, what the knowledge is. Exactly. Last question. Thank you very much for your answers and your candidness and everything. Last one's a tough one. What do you want to be remembered for? It's interesting. After um, well, after 10 years as the director, it's strange, but I'm the second longest serving director in really? the WAG's history. Now, um, that may mean nothing to you, but what it does mean, you, you start to think about legacy and what's the legacy. You know, I remember when I was um, interviewing for the Getty Museum Leadership Program in, um, you know, it's in, in L.A., and, and they picked 30 museum directors from around the world to spend three weeks together looking at contemporary issues today. And um, we had to come with one challenge. And the challenge I had was, what is an Inuit art center? What does that mean, anyway? So, but the, um, the, the essay you had to write also, if you were to leave your post today, would the WAG continue to flourish and thrive, or would it dismantle? And of course, for me, if there was one thing um, that I would like to have contributed to, known for, is that, well, he helped. He helped um, the cause. And I, and I believe um, the cause of art is the cause of the people. If I can put in their hands um, and let them take ownership of objects that'll help us understand other people, that'll help us learn, that'll inspire us, make us feel good. If I can do that, I feel I would have helped, contributed. Uh, he helped. It's so simple, but very beautiful. And I really like that answer. That's one of my favorites that we've ever had. So thank you for your time. Thank you for everything you've done for Winnipeg. Good luck in the next few years. I'm sure everything's going to be ramping up like crazy for you. Um, but I can't wait to see the finished product. The Inuit Art Center, I'm sure, will be wonderful. Thanks, Stephen, for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you again to Stephen Boris, an incredible man doing an amazing job at the WAG. If you've never been to the WAG or had the opportunity to see some of the galleries that they have on display there, make sure you try to make time to experience it because um, there's always something great to see. You can go to wag.ca, W-A-G.ca for more information. There's always something to see, uh, even for people who don't necessarily think that they know much about art. Uh, I'm one of them, but there's always a... a a thought-provoking and interesting experience at the WAG no matter uh, when you go. All music in the Because and Effect podcast was composed and produced by Trenton Burton. You can find out more of his music at trentonburton.com. Special thank you to Robert Zirk, Sonny Promolo, and Jeremy Morantz for additional assistance on the podcast. Appreciate your time, boys. You make my life a lot easier, and I'm really thankful to uh, have you guys helping out. You can also follow the Winnipeg Foundation on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook by searching at WPGFDN, or you can follow me at Nolan Bicknell as well. Because in Effect is a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation. I'm Nolan Bicknell signing off for one more week. We will see you next week. And remember, art has the power to change the world. Bye-bye.